Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to the next leg of the podcast relay. Um, give you a couple of minutes for those of you who are signing in just to get yourself settled and get yourself tuned in to uh, the latest leg of the podcast relay following on from Casper Berry last week. Uh, great conversation that Casper and I had and he has very generously handed over the baton to uh, Dan Stembridge who joins us from Falmouth this afternoon. Afternoon Dan, how are you? Afternoon, good to be here. Yeah, great to see you and uh, you know as everyone who's tuning in knows we are each week exploring the theme of if I knew then what I know now and seeing what conversation that takes us on each week um, and just you know really enjoying stories that people are sharing, perspectives that they have gained over time, um, being really generous with their self-reflection and openness as well uh, and, and it's been really great for, for us from Planet K2 to sort of see a lot of the connection with performance and confidence and uh and also i, I think the the deep um self-reflection that people have gone through which has ended ended up in them being in a position with some great stories to tell and reflect on and having achieved some great things so uh, uh we're very much looking forward to dan hearing your reflections on that as well but i guess a couple of things to give context for everyone who's tuning in so casper made the handover last week we know that you've got a background sort of, you know, in flying, um, RAF, Navy, but can you give us, you know, your version of your history and a little bit of your story uh, that brings you here today? And uh, it'd be great to get, you know, that, that fit through your words. Uh, right. Well, yeah, indeed. Um, I, uh, I spent 30 years, uh, 30 years in the Royal Navy, okay. um, pretty much split in two ways. The first, sort of 15 to 20 years was primarily in the cockpit of, of aircraft. I flew helicopters for a few years in the early 90s and then from the mid 90s uh, for the next sort of uh, 10, to, 10 to 12 years, I flew uh, fighter planes, either uh, the Sea Harrier uh, fighter plane with the Royal Navy mm -hmm. or the F-18 with the United States Navy from their carriers uh, and the AV-8B Harrier uh, with the United States Marine Corps. So uh, a lot of flying in those types of jobs and then take the sort of second half of the career, although I did a little bit of flying in there, mostly that was into more sort of senior management roles, right. okay. uh, culminating in uh, um, a job as uh, the commanding officer of an air station of sort of 3,000 people uh, and the, uh, the CAG, the air boss um, uh, for the Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers so for the air group that was embarked um in that carrier strike group okay. so that's pretty much what's taken me to here and i left uh, left the navy earlier this year uh and started up my own business uh, excellent timing to go out on a new business as we, as we perfect as ever yeah <laughs> how's how's lockdown been for you what, what's the experience been like uh, it's been pretty good, actually. Yeah, we've uh, nobody's throttled uh, anyone in the house, uh, as uh, me, my wife Helen, uh, and two teenage daughters. Um, so we've we've just about survived so far. Um, got one uh, one daughter is about to go back to university for her second year. Right. Uh, fingers crossed that she goes well for her sake. She goes back to uh, uh, to university, and uh, the youngest daughter she's got GCSEs next year. So. Right. 
Um, yeah, it's not. It's been not too bad, and the weather down here, apart from this last couple of weeks, has been amazing. So apart from lockdown, uh, there's definitely worse places to be. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. As a regular visitor down to Cornwall, you know, as I said, there's a few places down there that it would be good to be uh, sort of locked down and enjoying the, the countryside and the surrounds. So, um, yeah, great, great to get that sort of intro and then a little bit of current context. So, and, you know, just listening to that story of 30 years worth of service in, in different forms, that, that feels like there's a really interesting sort of foundation for you. Could I guess you could pick on any number of key moments or key situations but um you know let's see where we go so what you know when when we pose the thought if i knew then what i know now is there anything that comes to mind for you particular points in time or certain context what's where does your head go instantly when you start that reflective process well clearly uh you know as a fighter pilot i would you know the older i get the better i was so actually i look back and go well there's nothing nothing clearly uh, but actually the, the more i the more I thought about it, uh, uh, the, the sort of bucket of, uh, of stories and of thoughts about what I would perhaps do differently um, in looking back in time grew and grew and grew. So actually it became more of a problem of, of triaging. What right, those okay, yeah. Um, I, I think primarily it's, it's around uh, something that we, that we do very well in aviation and particularly in fighter aviation um, uh, that we don't necessarily bring into every other aspect of our working lives or our personal lives. Right. And so where we're very, very good, and, uh, and I guess if you look back historically, it's because we've, we've killed a lot of people, both in training and in combat, is that, that we train really hard to learn from our mistakes. Okay. And so we spend an inordinate amount of time planning, briefing, then we execute the mission, but then debriefing and learning from that so that we, we don't make the same mistakes and that we understand where we've been good and make sure that we spread that wider. And it's a really, um, the, the more I've stepped back from it, the more, in, the, the more impressed I've been in the way that we do that because you kind of take it for granted when you're, when you're sat within it. But what we don't tend to do is, uh, uh, is to take that, sort of methodology, if you like, and that thought process and apply it to everything else. And so whether we're, you know, in, in more management roles, mm -hmm. we don't necessarily, you know, make sure that our plan is aligned to our strategic aim. We don't necessarily spend more time briefing and formally bringing everybody into the brief so that everybody truly understands. And then again, debriefing. We don't sit down and formally debrief in a way that we do from a, from a fighter mission. And so I guess if, if I were to look back on it, it would be bring some of that culture because it is, I mean, it's ingrained in us. Yeah. You get back from a, from a mission and, you know, go away, jump in your car and don't debrief it. You feel like you've driven away without your underpants on, you right. know, it feels so odd to not do it. And yet we do that in our everyday life. So I think it would be bring that more into, into other aspects of work. And when, when in the process do you, at the process of developing into that world, when do you get introduced to that briefing rhythm and ritual? And so sort of when do you start to appreciate the, the real power of it? Because, I, I, you know, for me, it's a skill that people learn. I'm just wondering for you, when did you first start to realise the power of it, the value of it and become skillful at it? What, what was the process of developing that briefing mindset, I guess? 
I mean, it's really, <clears throat> it's very much from the start of, of flying. You know, the first, first aeroplane I ever flew was a, a chipmunk, uh, yeah. you know, uh, which was, and I'm now definitely showing my age, <laughs> a chipmunk that was designed, originally designed actually in the 30s and, and 40s. Uh, and some of my instructors flew uh, combat missions in, in Korea in 1950. In fact, there was one instructor who flew, um, who was an ex-Air Force guy who flew in World War II, flew Sunderlands and Spitfires, bizarrely, a bizarre mix of aeroplanes. But anyway, yeah. uh, and these were all old retired guys who used to do our initial sort of grading uh, in flying. And, you know, they, they obviously from a very dangerous age of flying in the 40s, 50s and 60s in particular, you know, it was ingrained in them and they ingrained that in us. And so it was right from the start, you know, right from, you know, and I joined pretty much straight out of school. So it became, it became normalized really quickly. And so it was very difficult to see in some respects the benefit you're doing it because the culture is, is teaching you to do it. Um, uh, and I guess that's the other aspect is the power of culture and it makes you do in this sense, extraordinarily brilliant things, but it also can make people do extraordinarily bad things. Right. Okay. And, and, and you mentioned with the, you know, the, the, the briefing and the mission and then the debriefing, you know, it is, are, are there different methods depending upon what's happened in the mission? So if, if things have all gone swimmingly, does the, does the debriefing go in a certain way compared to if, things haven't quite gone to plan, you know, is, is there a different mindset or is it the same method independent of the, of the mission? It's the same, it's the same, uh, it's the same method actually. Um, right. because you, even if it's gone well, there will always be things that you could have done better. Okay. I think it's having that mindset that it, which can be very irritating, you know, ask my wife it can be very irritating for people. Even when things have gone well, you're still trying to find some things that didn't go quite as well. Yeah. But, but actually the, the length of the debrief uh, is normally down to the complexity of the task. Um, and so I wouldn't say that everyone's exactly the same, but the fundamental aspect of why you need to treat them the same, regardless of how you think it went is that the more, complex the task the more people that are involved and your perspective of what happened prior to going into that debrief might be very different to mine which would be very different to somebody else so actually part of part of it is coming to a common understanding of what happened because only when you've understood that can you really get to whether things were done well bad indifferently and and therefore you can learn did, did, did you therefore get better as you did that more in terms of bringing in your independent view to the process because that's the responsibility rather than to begin with, is there more reticence to share because you kind of want to know what other people, you know, it's almost trying to get a group think, you know, are we all on the same page rather than actually we've got to start from our independent views to follow the conversation to get to a shared picture. Yeah, you've got you and, and actually um we the 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 biggest um the biggest no-no in 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 debriefing is uh is to is to cover something up and it it very much and it's very much looked upon negatively we understand because we look around the crew room in, in a fight squadron you look around and go 
well, he's an idiot, he's an idiot, I'm an idiot, we're all idiots, you know, we all make mistakes. Um, and therefore, we, we, we're happy to put our hand up and admit when we've done something wrong. Yeah. And that's, and what we, and the way that you keep developing that culture is actually, you don't applaud people, do, you know, being bad, clearly, but you applaud people for being honest about something and making a mistake. And you, and the exact opposite is the case if you find out that somebody has done something and covered it up. Because if you cover it up, it starts with a little thing, then, you, then it can get to something big and eventually you'll kill somebody because you'll, make a, you'll, you'll be covering up mistakes that, that may not have tripped you up or your colleagues up in the past, but, but ultimately may do in the future. Yeah. And I think it's because those stakes are very different. They're about people's lives. It forces you to be that way. The, the sad thing is that we don't apply that even when it doesn't matter in, in other aspects of, of business, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I think I've, I've seen you know, a clinical debrief process with uh, a room full of, oh God, it must have been nearly 60 people, a helicopter emergency medical service. Everyone kind of involved you know, but doing case reviews. There's three or four people talking about the actual sort of job that was done. And then you've got the medics talking about it, but then there's, there's loads of other people involved as well to kind of be in that process. And you, you, you definitely see the due diligence taking place when there are life and death lessons to be learned. And, and it, you know, it's a really precious form of sharing. And, and, and also the culture bit you mentioned, I think there's, there's safety in that sometimes as well. I don't know if that, I don't know if that's part of the, the process going into high risk situations together as well, but knowing there's that safety around learning together and moving on together and responding together. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a, a safety in the sort of physical sense of safety, but there's the, there's, you know, which, I, uh, but, but as I think you're alluding to is there's the sort of, you know, the, there's an emotional safety in being able to make mistakes. There's a, you know, you're, you're, you're able to, um, you're able to to get over the fact that people are going to make mistakes. We all do, and and I think it would be foolish to think otherwise. And 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 so you know we try and stamp out you know any um, you know a blame culture, and it's not a no blame culture; it's a just culture. And so you know there's a difference between consciously going against um, uh, you know rules or a brief or a um, or, or an agreement in whatever sense it may be um, there's a difference between formally you know making a mental decision to disregard it and just failing to implement it very well yeah yeah that's a mistake you know yeah 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 you just remind me of my favorite joke which is you know whenever you've got a blame culture just go around asking everyone whose fault it is as a blame culture and no one ever owns up <laughs> it's just like it's not me yeah yeah, someone's fault. Um, yeah. But we need to really find out whose issue it is. But but I, th I think that differentiation between the absence of a blame culture isn't what you're after. It's the presence of a just culture, which allows that kind of um, assumption of positive intent, knowing that people are qualified to be there, that everyone is always seeking to do to bring the best of their ability to situations. And it, and it, as you were talking about, it was making me wonder about you know what. How do you reflect on that process of being in an environment where the the margins for error are tiny? So you're trying not to make errors, 
And so this kind of, and you're reducing errors and kind of by increasing accuracy and, you know, all of the stuff that you do from a training point of view, but actually then being able to talk openly if something wasn't as close to the standard as it should be. That feels like there's some challenging sort of forces at, you know, at play there against each other. Yeah. And, it, and I, and of course, there's, it's a bit like, um, uh, it's a bit like going out, you know, so there's, what you can't do is go out there to not to not make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So, because otherwise, it's a bit like going out to not lose a game. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it 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 drives a behaviour in you where you're more likely to lose the game. Yeah. You know, you have to go out there and you know because the 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 and it can particularly if you're talking about um, it's it's rarely like this by the way. But if you're talking about you know one v one fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's you against somebody else, and therefore it's about ultimately winning that that joust, that that, that yeah. engagement. Um, but but driving yourself to a position where all you're trying to do is be as safe as you can, you won't be very effective. So you have to have a balance in there as well of what is it you're trying to achieve, and then achieve that as safely as possible. Not how can I be as safe as possible, and then what does that allow me to achieve? Yeah. So, and that's where Casper and I have a, an interesting sort of conversation because actually what he, he generally talks about, you know, as you know, is, is about uh, allowing organizations the freedom to, to take risks and to, uh, you know, they, they should free themselves up to, to taking those risks. Whereas a lot, of, a lot of aviation, particularly if you talk about naval aviation, you know, landing on an aircraft carrier at night is mm-hmm. is a inherently dangerous activity. Not 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 just for the pilot, but actually for everybody on the ship. You know, you're flying a a thirty ton missile at a, at a at an aircraft. You know, at a ship yeah. with a lot of people in very close proximity. So, you know, there's a uh, there's there's definitely in that aspect there's a job to do. So you have to land on the ship. Yeah. And then you look at how do I make that as safe as possible, and therefore you have to try and do everything to minimise those those uh, uh, those risks to life. Yeah. Uh, and and so it, there is definitely uh, a tension in there and a balance. Yeah, and, and that, that's always what I see in terms of you know sort of you know recommendations for how to do stuff. Context is everything, uh, you know, and and where where we've got an organisation that is looking to kind of innovate and you know disrupt and do new things, it's got freedom. There isn't constraint that it's worried about, but then you start, you go into a financial services arena, which is highly regulated, you know, and you can't just make up your own rules and do it the way, you know, you've kind of got, you know, there, there's all, there's all these constraints around different contexts, which I think are so important to, to, yeah. for people to factor into the briefing, debriefing performance process. But as, as you were talking, I was wondering around that kind of the ability for you to go out and sort of seek to, fly with the kind of freedom that you talk about and execute what needs to be effective and the culture point you made and that safety physically what 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 difference has it made for you depending upon the nature of the other people around you and that culture in terms of your ability to go and fly the way that you need to is there a relationship between surrounding culture and your flying confidence skill etc yeah well i think you know it- any any culture will affect how you behave in it, and actually, the the the, the one thing that that is for sure is when you're in it, you're probably the worst person in the world to understand it. Right. 
Okay. And, and, and actually that's why what you need is, um, is some ability and therefore some external ability to be able to look at something. So, you know, if I look, if I look back now, so you can do that by looking back in time mm-hmm. at something, but at the, t- at the, at, at the moment that you're in it, you need somebody physically to, to not be a part of that culture to be able to provide you with some objective assessment of, of what that culture is, is, uh, is like, is it, you know, where is it, where is it influencing uh, your activity in a positive sense? And where is it actually erring towards something which is uh, perhaps either negative or in the case of safety critical or business performance, perhaps, uh, where it's safety critical, it may be actually, you know, driving you to a strategic failure in your business or a strategic failure in terms of an accident. And so it, 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 it does affect your behavior most definitely. But confidence is part of it. And, and part of that is that, you know, all being in it together and feeling that you're all part of something that is, uh, that is bigger than you. And I'm sure you must have seen that in sport. It's definitely the case within squadrons and units, even to the, to the point of nonsense where, you know, you're, you're in such competition with your sister squadron, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll make really poor decisions just to be slightly better than them. Yeah. <laughs> no. And actually, that's where you need somebody to go, okay, we get the competition, but just calm yourselves down. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, the sport, the sport reference just makes me wonder, you know, in that environment, you know, because it takes a pretty confident, strong ego to want to be, you know, in control of an aircraft that's, you know, the price that it is capable of doing what it is. So, what, how, how were you, what did you notice about that development process of some strong individuals with high ego, but then their ability to kind of, you know, um, the culture is more important than me? What, what, what did you notice there? Or did you have any learnings there as well that, that, that were useful for you when you went into the command position? Yeah, well, you definitely, you, you, there's a, there's a strength and a weakness in having a hierarchical organization. Right. And so, you know, there are, you know, you, you, you start off lower down in an organization and therefore those in a, in a more senior and experienced position, both in terms of their age management leadership, but also in terms of their skills mm-hmm. uh, you know, handling skills in an airplane. And they're very, you know, they're very different. Some of the best, you know, some of the, the, the best leaders are not necessarily the, the, the best fighter pilots right. uh, and, and vice versa. Um, and so, uh, you, you know, you do need to separate, separate those. But there's certainly, you know, a structure and a history and a hierarchy that helps you in sort of in keeping in check within that, that structure. Um, uh, but as you move on to more senior roles, you, you reach back to your own personal experiences and actually in line with what we're talking about here, if I you know, knew then what I know now, it does teach you to self-reflect. You know, I look back at some of the things that we did you know, in our squadron and we were, you know, we, we were exceptionally good at what we did. Mm-hmm. We did some things that I definitely you know, wouldn't be proud of and I definitely would have come down very hard on as the CEO of an air station with nine squadrons if you know, one of my squadrons, you know, had a, you know, an, an attitude, which a lot was around about time, but an attitude to, you know, aviation, uh, uh, alcohol, 
um, and you know, basically lack of sleep and, and yeah, yeah. you know, getting up and going flying the next morning. I'd be really disappointed. But actually, a lot of that is, you know, looking back over 20, 25 years mm-hmm. where where attitudes to it were very different to how they are now. Yeah. You know, yeah. so you have to, you know, you have to evolve with the time. And actually it's very, it's I guess somewhat timely in what's in what we're looking at nationally at the moment in terms of our history. You know, you, you, you have to put context to everything that you look at and make sure that you move forward and learn from it. Yeah. And, 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 and that's certainly what I'm getting as well from, you know, the, the overall sense of the brief mission debriefing. It's that, you know, constant evolution. However delighted or devastated you are or anywhere in between, all of this process is, is done to advance, you know, future confidence as well as better collaboration, better collegiality, all of those kind of things as well. So I think it's, um, it, it, you know, it, it, does, it does feel particularly relevant to demonstrate that, forward looking are we going to see a, a change so mm. I, I always use you know the the concept that learning's only said to have taken place when you can observe a relatively permanent change in behavior yeah yeah it's one thing acquiring loads of knowledge but it's another thing actually that knowledge leading to you know some some obvious you know subtle or obvious changes and, and it's the feed forward process i guess which the, the you know debriefing is really about the future rather than the past yeah yeah interesting for people yeah it is and and i think the other the other aspect is that um you know what when when people ask me about you know people particularly who are who who are interested in aviation yeah from the outside you know look from the outside looking in you know they've watched top gun and they want to talk to you about about fighter planes yeah they generally dog fights if you want (laughs) exactly how fast does it go mister how high does it go but they they generally want to ask you um about the equipment about the technology um and actually the interesting thing is and the same is the case with the debrief we have a lot of technology we have a lot of equipment we use a lot of analysis and data and data science to to help us understand uh, and feed that in but actually uh, fundamentally the debriefing the brief it's a human endeavor so what you're trying to do is wh- whatever the technology is that sits around it it's about understanding how humans are interacting and how that's affecting human uh, behaviors how that's affecting human outcomes and if i think back to all of the stories that 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 i have swelling around in my head from 30 years in 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 the navy it's always about the people Mm. I don't. I don't miss. I don't miss fly. I, I miss flying. Then, with yeah. those people yes, okay. doing what I was doing then, not. I don't wish I was doing it now. And so it's always about. It's always about the human being, and it's the same with the debrief. Whatever technology you bring to it, it's about getting a common understanding of what's happened and then learning from it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was doing something the other night and sort of, you know, reflecting on the fact that artificial intelligence is not really of any use unless you've got actual intelligence of people alongside it to kind of be, you know, the interface between, you know, what that is saying and what you want to be doing. And, and, you know, and certainly elite sport is all around trying to create the data you want rather than just sort of wait to see if you've produced the data that you like the look of. Yeah. 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 No, you're absolutely right. And making it fit the argument you want. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know it's uh, 
And I think the other thing is just because you can measure something doesn't mean that you should. And right. just because you can't doesn't mean it's not important. Yeah, okay. And I, and I think that, that that sits in a lot of, uh, a, a lot of people's views over, over investing in, in data science as, a, um, as an answer to their problems. And it's only part of the answer because you've got to know the right questions to ask. You've got to have the right expectations of what you're going to get back. And you've got to be able to work with it appropriately to get that benefit from it. And that's a human endeavor. Yeah, yeah. Well, as, as a psychologist, having never really been able to measure anything through my career, then I'm you know, <laughs> delighted. You know, I'm always jealous of the physiologists who can actually, you know, measure stuff. You know, they they got machines that make noises and everything. It's really impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think that's that subjective, objective. You know. Um, yeah, relationship is really key. How, how did you manage that sort of? You know, I, I guess as, as as the pilot who is that interface as well and so your subjective feel for something versus the data or the you know the feet the, the actual what the what the aircraft is saying how did, how did you develop the confidence to trust the subjective feel as much as what an instrument's telling you uh experience right okay. so uh and pass down experience as well and always be always be wary of that when someone says tried and tested you know, we've always done it this way just because we have. Um, but, but actually, there's a little bit of, uh, it's having confidence of not being an output-based um, uh, organization purely. Right. Now, obviously, output is, is important. But if you don't focus on the things that you can't measure, mm -hmm. well, you know, the world that you live in, yeah, uh, yeah. you've lived in an elite sport, um, then if you're not confident enough to invest in that and invest in the people, uh, then you're not going to get, you're not going to reap the rewards and experience will show you that because you'll just be purely focused on an output and then you'll forget about the people and then they won't perform and then your output will, will, will fail. Yeah. So it's having the confidence to focus on that. I would say the other is to resist the temptation of, uh, always trying to quantify something. So, you know, eight out of 10 cats prefer whatever it may be. Yeah. It's purely based on a subjective assessment of somebody asking whether their cat liked it or not. Yeah. And we do that in, in aviation, uh, certainly in operational test, you know, we'll give, you know, rather than measuring the, the parameters specifically, we'll give somebody a new software, a new weapon, a new something, get them to go and fly with it. Uh, and then we'll talk about it subjectively. How did you know? How would you rate that in terms of this type of mission set? Yeah. Um, and they'll give you a score, and then you'll add it up, and then you'll end up with a number or a percentage or a color or a yeah. you know. Yeah. And people want to see that who are investing money in it. They yeah. want in investment decisions, which these are billion-pound investment decisions, are often based on you know subjective data that you've added up to make look as if it's something that is that is now quantifiable that, that's fine you, you, you just do things like call it nominal group technique and all of a sudden it takes on a power of its own or you know um instead of a line that you sort of have that's a certain length and you draw it you call that a visual analog scale that yeah. now inst instantly that you know we now have the power of something yeah. that's much more impressive than it is but but yeah. I, I think I, I think that's that for me is the interesting thing within the culture where you have a culture of expertise where the people who are producing those subjective 
um, measures have a shared mental model of what excellence looks like and are tuned into certain stuff. So if I participated in something, I wouldn't be, my, my subjective data wouldn't be any use because I don't have those reference points and some of that cultural reference that's so important in there as well. And I guess that, that's some of the stuff you're saying about reflecting on the power of culture because there's the passed on wisdom, the individual read and the desire to move things. And you're getting that constant blend of, you know, experts driving things forward rather than anyone for who fancies throwing an opinion in having, you know, having an influence. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't say it's yes. Uh, and of course it only goes part way towards those investment decisions. It's not yeah. as if they're making them. Yeah. Um, but, but actually an interesting one that came, came to my mind when you were saying that was about diversity, because of course, if you, if you get, you know, a bunch of people who've all, grown up the same, been through the same training, been into the same sorts of squadrons, same sorts of experiences from very similar backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera, you'll end up with an answer that is probably um, not very, uh, yeah. no, not very effective. Yeah. Um, and so things like exchanges, so my, my exchange tour with the US Navy was a, an interesting one where um, you know, you embed yourself into their organization and actually I was in a, in the operational test squadron is where they, they, it's the final check before things go to the front line yeah, okay. so before they go on operations. So you have the very latest, uh, equipment, uh, it's very expensive. Um, and you're, you're asking people to, to give a, uh, to, to give their subjective and, and objective, um, uh, understanding of that equipment mm -hmm. to give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down in broad in broad sense, and if you've got people involved in that program that have flown various different aircraft types, you'll get a better answer than if you've got people that have only flown that aircraft type. So actually, what they tended to do was was bring in lots of different aircraft types uh, in in the U.S. Navy, and of course, the token foreigner. Uh, and so I had a very different perspective on some of the some of the uh, equipment and software that was being introduced. And I could bring a different perspective that said, have you thought about this or this or this? And I can think of some really interesting, you know, not, probably not that interesting to you, but some interesting examples of where they carried over from one mark of aircraft to another, the same mistakes in right. three different ones. And it took the idiot to go, why don't you do it this way with the it was with radar symbology? And everyone went, well, we've always done it that way since 1960. You know, this had been in this, this radar that had evolved over time to this most modern of radars, but they still did the same symbology. Yeah. So my point is, it takes somebody from the outside, it takes a bit of diversity to be able to spot these things. And so you've got to make sure that you do that in, in your, in every part of your business. Yeah. Yeah. And again, again, for me, that comes back to having the confidence to be that sort of outlier voice and, mm -hmm. and, you know, again, back to culture, how do you create a culture which celebrates the outlier voice and, and gives it space to be heard whilst also the culture remaining strong. And I think that's, that's some of the stuff people worry about. Well, we can't have too many dissenting voices. Well, they're not dissenting, are they? Yeah. They're, they're adding expert value. And, uh, yeah, I think that feels like that. That's quite a balance. Were, were you able to sort of use in your leadership positions? Was that something you were able to sort of balance? Were there any particular things that you found useful in, in sort of helping 
keep those voices sort of of unity and sort of you know desire to see the wood for the trees yeah it, it's it depends on your organization you know any anyone will tell you that you need to pick a diverse team mm-hmm. uh, um, around you and different types whether it be different types of personality or whether it be people from different backgrounds ethnicities whatever it may be you know you want to have you know something that that, that is more widely representative. Yeah. The difficulty that you have in lots of large organizations and the Navy is no different is you don't always have choice. You arrive and you're part of a team that's, now there's benefit in that because of course, if you start picking your team, there are those that would pick people that look exactly like them, behave exactly like them. And funny old thing would, would sit like a mirror in front of them and say, what a brilliant idea that was boss. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you do, you do need, you know, there needs to be a bit of balance in there, but sometimes you can't help the team that you have. Um, but, but you can help how you behave in it. And so, uh, you know, that might be as the boss is not speaking first, making sure that other people are are given the opportunity to speak first, uh, so that they don't have to disagree with you if they've got a different perspective because they're going first. And it takes a bit of time to get people used to that because they feel a little bit nervous. Um, but it's also, uh, accepting that. Uh, as the boss that even though you think you know the answer, I mean, there were often times where I thought, I know what the answer is here. Can we just get there a bit quicker? Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, you know, they'd come to the same answer of me. And so I'd walk home thinking to myself, you see, I'm just, you know, I'm just getting there quicker than these guys. Yeah. Uh, But it's useful to let them do that because it makes them feel more involved. And actually, yeah, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. And then, you know, a few months later, they're coming up with a with with a with an idea that's different to mine, and I'm thinking, well, I'll let them run with it. And eventually, I'm getting to the point of that's a far better idea than mine ever was. And so you've yeah. got you you've got to allow those opportunities, and you can't just do it once and expect it to work. You've got to keep doing it, and you'll surprise yourself. And actually, you'll look back and go, I should have done that more and more and more and more. And I yeah. wish I had. I did. Yeah. I really did. Yeah, and that, that mirrors a lot, of the, a lot of the work we do with, with teams around, you know, building team effectiveness habits rather than having a two-day off-site once a year and kind of go, it's all right, we've done our teamwork. <laughs> you kind of haven't really, have you? It's, it's what's the daily habits and the weekly habits that demonstrate the commitment to the kind of team that you want to be and the kind of output that you want and reputation you want to have with yourselves and with other people. And I think that's the... The, the, the discipline of it the, the, that's critical, keeping going with the stuff that works. Yeah, and it's interesting, actually, I, I would imagine, and, the, and it's a, 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 the same parallel. Uh, I know you're asking me the questions, but I've got a problem yeah. for you, and that's about, you know, if you, if you think about elite sport, and, you know, I love my rugby, and yeah. I look back to, you know, Lions tours in the, in the 70s, yeah. uh, you know, where you, you definitely look at that and say, you know, what a, you know, how, how amazing to bring together all those people from different nations, you know, who were battering each other in the six nations to come and work together. And that sort of, that team, that team ethos. Well, a lot, a lot of that was built around the fact that it wasn't necessary. You could, you could argue that some of that was built around the fact that it wasn't professional, that they were out down the pub every night and they bonded with each other in areas that were outside of elite sport. How do you find it now in, in now that, now that much like in aviation, we can't be out, you know, on the, on, you know, down the pub with our mates uh, and then up flying the next morning. The same is the case with elite sport. How do they find those, 
uh, you know, those, those opportunities to truly bond and let their guard down so that they understand each other as human beings. Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of that, certainly from my experience with, with the rowing setup, a lot of that just came from the amount of time they were spending together in training camps and, you know, yeah. be, beyond the training, there has to be certain things to do to entertain yourself and actually, you know, keep things going. And then very creative in terms of, you know, some of the things that were shared, some of the things that they were doing, which allowed the people to be the people. Yeah. And, and to get to know each other a little bit more. So you would definitely see, you know, some, uh, if, I, if I think of some of the things that the, the men's team have done in the past when they go up to a high altitude camp and, you know, there's, there's, there's always something that they'll do up there to keep themselves entertained, you know. Um, so, you know, and, there, and there's someone who will be taking on, you know, kind of social itinerary stuff or deciding what the thing is that they're going to try and do. So that, so that it procs space and proximity and actually needing to do some stuff that is a contrast and very quickly it gets to the point of understanding the people a bit more behind there as well so that's so um but that that's again the experience and, and the shared the, the shared experience of going through the whole thing rather than just turning up and doing the training every day and going and going off home so there's a lot of that that they do kind of get to yeah the investment of each other and the importance of the whole thing to each other as well so i think the um and 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 the, you know there are obviously within that the friendships grow as well and so there are pockets of you know the the, the social stuff outside of it as well yeah. and from from a sport perspective it's always really interesting because you kind of go right get the task cohesion absolutely spot on and any benefit you can get from the social cohesion yeah adds value yeah but there's <laughs> Lots of teams in the past have kind of gone social first. We'll hope, we'll hope, we'll hope, we'll hope that somewhere we find a team in this. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's shared experiences ultimately, isn't it? I mean, you spend, you know, we do deployments for six months, locked up in a tin box, you know, 20, 24 hours a day. You're not, you're not getting more than a few hundred yards from anybody. Yeah. It's just not that big. So it sort of, you, you have those, those time and often just times of utter boredom, you know, where you're, you know where you're playing a game of of uckers, which to the uninitiated is not ludo, uh, but it's a, it's a game that's very similar. Uh, but um, you know, playing these sorts of games, you know, sharing those experiences, the highs and lows of as a, of everything, um, you know, builds that bond in people that allows them to go that extra mile for them. And again, it's not quantifiable, but it's really, I do think it's really important. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and certainly the, the culture bit that you talk about and thinking about the culture of pride around the performance, but also pride around that the people, the, the, the people who we know and who we're part of in terms of building that performance, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's, more, it's more than output stuff by such yeah. a long way. Um, and I bet most of the stories that, that uh, you know, some of the great rowers that, that you've worked with, I bet most of the but most of the stories when they get together, you know, over a dinner or, or whatever it may be, will not be about when they won an Olympic gold. Mm. It will yeah. be about, you know, something that nobody else knows about. You know, it's just yeah. a story that's funny to them or yeah. an experience when something happened. It won't, it won't be about that, you know, this, that this amazing event that everybody's got a part of. So actually, it doesn't, in some ways, isn't necessarily quite as special. Yeah, yeah, well, and absolutely. You know, there's, there's the, the the public have the insight into that as well. Yeah. You know, going back to the lions, I remember one of the videos. You know, the first you know lions tours when you know, actually um, 
friend of mine working for Impact was involved in some of the team building stuff that was going on. But I remember one of the speeches, it wasn't Ian McGeek and it was someone else, but um, um, saying, you know, in years to come, we're going to look back at this and we're just going to, it will just take a look. It's all it's going to yeah. take, you know, and, and there's all of that stuff around, you know, the meaning of it and what we've created together in this, and, and, you know, that that's the stuff that will come back to life. Yes. Uh, the relationships and the kind of, um, the, the the personal experiences that were part of that as well is, is is there for you you know reflecting back on the early bits of commanding and sort of be, being the person at the top in that position to make those kind of speeches is, is there stuff that you learned early that helped you you know shape a culture with the people who were going to be part of the culture so you've talked about kind of leaders talking last and that kind of stuff but was there any bigger picture stuff that you did to kind of set the parameters of you know this this is what it is that we're going to be part of or you know how, how did you sort of do bigger picture stuff yeah i i the first day at the uh one of the first days i arrived at the base you know i went into a hangar guys working on an aircraft uh and i you know I asked him what, what he was doing. He said, well, I'm fixing the roadhead, sir. I said, uh, I said, right, but why are you, why are you doing it? And he said, well, it's, it's broken. <laughs> so I said, no, but why? And he said, he's obviously not quite get, getting the thread. He said, well, the chief's told me to, to fix it. And I said, no, you're doing it because you're, you're providing aircraft to protect the nuclear deterrent, to support counterterrorism, and to defend the nation's aircraft carriers. Yeah. And, you know, he's a bit of a blank look. But actually, what I, what I did there was build a, a, a clear understanding of why people were doing it. And then found ways to not only get that message to the people who work there, whether they were military or civilian, but also to their families. Because if you're going to send people away for months on end, you know, and their families are going to be left behind... Uh, you know, you have to at least feel that what you're doing has got some value rather than I'm fixing the helicopter or the aircraft because it's broken and it needs to be fixed. Yeah. You know, it needs to be something a bit more strategic than that. And, and therefore, it's about what you're doing to the national, national effort that you, that you feel as if you're doing something that's important. And yeah. so I think there's that. And then at the really tactical level, it's just about spending time and being human and just talk, talking to people. And so it's too, it's, it was always, I had a, a brilliant uh, base warrant officer, uh, the sort of senior non-commissioned non uh, officer on the, on the base, um, uh, Bridget Turner. And she, she would come into the office every day and get me out of my office and take me somewhere on the base. Yeah, and it's three thousand. You know, so it's, it's not as if you go in. You know, you you could visit every place on the base and and not not see everyone in a year. But yeah. she made sure I got out and just spent time having a cup of coffee, having a discussion with people, and message gets out that you're a, you're approachable, that you're a human being, that you're not you're not this person that sits sits here and and doesn't understand them. Yeah. Yeah, that, that classic stuff, you know, managing by walking about and a lot of the stuff that's been talked about and that, you know, people, I think as soon as something becomes, you know, an acronym of M <laughs> MBWA, you know, kind of, well, you know, but actually forgetting the fact that, no, look, this thing is there because it makes a difference to how people feel about what they're part of. And I, I think that's, 
that's so important, particularly now as well, where we can't kind of manage by walking about and kind of, you yeah. know, everyone's yeah. kind of working virtually. It's what's the equivalent of that and, and, and how important is that stuff going to be when, when things, you know, return to a situation where there is going to be more interaction face to face. And that, you know, I, th I think that's so important to look at the, you know, it's not the single act of managing by walking about because I've been told that's a good thing to do. It's the realization of, you know, that what, what that means and the opportunities that creates to reinforce how you're working together. Yeah. And it's not, yeah, it's creating those non-transactional relationships because yeah. and that's the problem with virtual working things become very very transactional in the way that you that, that you deal with things and so if you took one of those walkabouts yeah if i hadn't done it it would matter not a job and that's the mindset that you have when you sat in your office and you're a bit busy and it's a bit of an embuggerance to go and to yeah. go and do it but if you add that up over two or three years and hundreds of those walkabouts those are really important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you hope you get to the point where if you didn't walk around for a couple of days, people would kind of go, where is he? Where is he? You're <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 But, but, but also, you know, that I, th I think that that's the part of it where you, you start to build a culture that people recognize they're part of and that they contribute to in a certain way. And there's a, there's a, there's an expected rhythm of things, but also a personal responsibility to play a part in it as well. And that, yeah. you know, that's, yeah, I, you, you and I, when we were speaking the other day, I said, you know, I, I keep asking people at the moment about, you know, if if what was going on in your head and your chosen behaviours, if those were instantly mirrored by everyone else in your organisation, how worried would you be about the culture that you're creating? You know, so my, my attitude and my behaviours, yeah. <laughs> everyone else is mirroring them, but, you know, is this somewhere I want to be? Or is this, <laughs> am I starting to think, well, I'm a little, I think I'm, I need to have a word with myself, you know, and, and, and it is, it's that balance between where you've got the influence, absolutely use it, but everyone has the responsibility to lead the culture from their place. I guess that's a lot of what you're, you're, you're alluding to. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and you, you can set that example that it's okay to take that time to go and do it. And not only that, but it's important that you do do it. And I remember bosses of mine telling me this when I was a young lieutenant. Right. Going, yeah, whatever. No, <laughs> okay, I'll go down in the hangar and I'll go and have a chat with the lads, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. But, but I never, I didn't see, every time I did it, I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. But I still needed to be nudged to do it. Yeah. Uh, and actually, again, you know, the older you get, the more you realise actually that, that really was important. Yeah. And, and yeah. is important and the things that you, you you find out things that you were never intending to find out that's that's the beauty of those sorts of interactions is if it uh, if you only find out things when you know i want to find this out i'm going to go and ask a question i'll get an answer that's what it is that's what email does to people yeah yeah becomes transactional because there's nothing else around it you just you bound it in, in how it is. A conversation, as we just attested to, you know, can go anywhere. Yeah. You never know where it's going to go. And actually, you might take you to a place where you go, oh, God, yeah, I remember something. And you tell a story and that yeah. sticks with people or, you know, and, and allows them to then share a story of theirs that makes them think differently and 
and you share those things and every now and again, in fact, more than every now and again, you get a nugget of something that you were never expecting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, at the, the moment and the theme coming out here around, you know, the importance of the, the, the human side of it and the, the, the people behind the performance and never losing sight of that feels like, you know, just, just such a really good place to reflect upon, you know, and, and sort of, you know, finish on your, your boss is telling you this thing, but the realization of the importance of it and that being a critical a success factor on the way is so key. And, and you mentioned a little while ago around just culture. And, and if anyone's listening who, who sort of wants to pick up on just culture as a topic, Sydney Decker is probably the main author who has written a lot on that area as well. Fascinating area, particularly coming out of aviation, but also healthcare and, and the importance of, of creating a just culture. But I, but I think all of us in the environments that we're part of, the aspiration to sort of deliver a just culture and be part of it and, you know, is, is, is really, really valuable and, and definitely the opposite of a blame culture. Mm. Um, so, so any last thoughts, just to, just to finish up on around, if I knew then what I know now, any, any final nuggets or conclusions for you? God, I wish I'd thought about that before and I could have done something <laughs> snappy, couldn't I? I, I think it's, uh, you know, always question whether that's yourself or, or others. That doesn't mean that you don't trust people. It just means that you, you're, you're, you're just seeking to understand because if you, if you don't understand it, you can't, you can't either reap the rewards of how good it is or fix it if it's not right. So question. Yeah. So question. No, brilliant. They're really, really, really useful. And, um, yeah, we've managed to get through that entire conversation without getting too geeky about aircraft and getting excited about some of the amazing things you must have done at the sort, you know, at, at the uh, the controls of some uh, remarkable bits of machinery. But maybe that's for a, maybe that's for another occasion. Dan, it's been fascinating listening to your reflections, um, and and I'm keen to know where the baton goes next for us. So uh, from your world of sort of aviation and culture, what what's what's the handover for next week? Well, it's a handover to the, to, uh, to the police. So okay. uh, I'm going to hand over to uh, a chap called uh, Sean West. Oh, not a... Sting. So I, I was getting excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go back to the 1980s. Never mind. Oh, dear. See, look, you've deflated him now. He's going to be very disappointed. You're going to be very disappointed that he's not going to sink. Well, perhaps he will sink. Perhaps he well. will. Who knows? So, that's what you were going to say. Sorry. Yeah, Sean West, who's a, uh, a senior, very senior uh, police officer, uh, very experienced, got a lot of great stories, uh, been all around the world um, uh, in the course of his uh, in the course of his work, and currently is is chairing a COVID nineteen um, uh, group that's looking across um, across all government departments and and about how. Uh, we sort of react and deal with uh, with this emergency. So uh, he'll have, I'm sure, some some great stories to tell and great reflections uh, of his uh, of his time in the police. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. You know, so I instantly think there that you know, if I knew then what I know now, sometimes it might be a week ago that you're reflecting on rather than sort of several years. So it could, it could be quite interesting in that context just to just to have a look at that. No, fantastic handover. That that's superb. So. Uh, um, I'll certainly look forward to that and I'll pick up with Sean and get everything ready for next Friday, uh, which is also my 
uh, youngest seventh birthday. So I'll be breaking away from uh, birthday parties to do this bit in the middle of the day and then uh, uh, get onto that as well. So that's going to be a nice contrast of a day. So, sort of, uh, you know, Indeed, yeah. uh, so looking forward to that. But look, really appreciate the generosity of your time and your openness today, Dan. So thank you very much. As ever, folks, this will be available on the performance room. Um, so keep looking into that. And if you know, you're interested in any of the stuff we're doing, get on the Planet K2 website, have a look at that stuff as well. Dan's company, Whole Ship, uh, as well. Loads of great stuff that he's doing with a kind of that data area and also culture within businesses. So, you know, do, do look at that as well. Um, but I'll leave you to your afternoon, sir. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much. And uh, take care, everyone. And we'll see you next week. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you.